couple of years ago, I was visiting Kiev in the Ukraine. It was winter, and so the sun set very early, around 4.30 p.m. I had met a girl named Daria on a Jewish dating app, and we were in the process of setting up a date. I was free Saturday evening, so I suggested we meet around 8 p.m. for a drink. But Daria, though Jewish, was not at all religious, and she worked on Saturdays. She said, let's meet after my work at 6 o'clock. I don't want to have to wait around for two hours. I said, okay, that's fine, but just so you know, I keep Shabbat, so I won't be checking my phone at all on Saturday. But Shabbat ends around 5.15 p.m., so I'll be able to meet you at 6. As a refresher, here is how Shabbat and the Jewish day in general functions. Shabbat begins at sunset on Friday evening. However, Shabbat concludes on Saturday evening, not at sunset, but at nightfall. It is not exactly clear when nightfall occurs. Generally, it's believed that when you can see three stars in the sky, it is nightfall and Shabbat is over. These three stars appear no later than 45 minutes or so after sundown. So if Shabbat began at 4.30 p.m., it would end at 5.15 p.m. the next day. Or so I thought. The plan was set. We were to meet at 6 o'clock Saturday evening for drinks at a rather chic bar in a hotel lobby. The sun went down on Friday, as it always does, and Shabbat began. The next day, Saturday, I had made plans to go to a rabbi's house for lunch. The rabbi was very religious. He had a long beard, bookshelves filled with tomes of Jewish scripture, and at least four or five kids incessantly running around on the carpet. The meal began around 2 o'clock. I thought it would end at 4 o'clock, or maybe 4.30 at the latest. But it just kept going and going, on and on. The main course wasn't even served until about 4.30. I began to get nervous. I checked my watch. It was 5.15. Technically, Shabbat was over. It was dark outside. I could maybe even glimpse a star or two through the window. I pulled out my chair and stood up. I have to get going, I said. Not yet, said the rabbi. Shabbat isn't over yet. But I have plans tonight, I answered. Shabbat ends at 5.45, he responded. Just wait another half an hour. Enjoy yourself. It's better this way. Trust me. No, it's not better this way, I thought to myself. Shabbat is over. I have a date tonight. Now I'm going to be so late that she's probably just going to leave. But what could I say to the rabbi? This religious family had just spent hours serving me tons of free food, like salmon and salad and hummus and cholent and wine. I couldn't just leave. But I thought to myself, okay, it's okay. If I can just leave here by 5.45, I should be fine. After all, the bar is only about 25 minutes away. I'm sure that if I'm 10 or 15 minutes late, Daria would understand. I snuck into the bathroom and checked my text messages. I was hoping that maybe she wrote me saying that she was also running late. No. Instead, she had written, Just got out of work. On my way to the bar. See you at 6. Um, I wrote back, I might be like 15 minutes late or so. Okay, no problem, she wrote. 
I will just walk slowly to the bar. Anyway, the rabbi promised me I would be able to leave at 5.45. But of course, it ended up being several minutes later than that. I had to say goodbye to everyone, say thank you, put on my jacket and my scarf and my boots and my hat to prepare myself for the freezing Kiev evening I was about to be walking out into. Then I had to order a taxi, wait for the taxi, find the taxi. I checked my watch. 6.20. I was already 20 minutes late, and I hadn't even left yet. I tried to stay cool, to think about Indiana Jones and how even when he was on the cusp of death, he always found an extra moment to reach back for his hat. But nevertheless, I felt, well, frantic and frazzled. I checked my messages. I'm already here, Daria had written. I won't be there for 20 more minutes, I responded. I'm really sorry. There's tons of traffic. 20 more minutes, she wrote with a stream of exclamation points. Okay, I guess I'll wait. I finally get there around 6.45. I'm 45 minutes late. At this point, I'm not even expecting that she'll be there. I rush into the lobby and enter the hotel bar. I look all around. She's not there. Hmm, maybe she's waiting in the lobby. I walk out of the bar, and from a distance, I see her. She's standing there, all dressed up, in high heels, a blue leather jacket, and black stockings. I walk over to her. She greets me with a warm smile. I begin to apologize. She laughs and says, Ooh, my English, not so good. I was a bit surprised that she could barely speak English, as she was able to write in English reasonably well through text. But I realized she had probably been using Google Translate or something like that. I was even more surprised that she was so friendly. I thought she would be extremely annoyed with me since she had to wait almost an hour for me to arrive. But then I figured, well, maybe she's just a kind person. Maybe it's Ukrainian culture to be for very forgiving. There was also one other surprise. She looked just a bit different from her photos on the dating app. We sat down for drinks at the bar. Her English was very poor, so it was quite hard to communicate. Still, she was very sweet and friendly, laughing and smiling and so forth. We were both looking at the menu when suddenly she got a text message. She checked her phone. The waitress came over, and I ordered a glass of wine for myself. Meanwhile, my date was still checking her phone, so I decided to also check mine. I wanted to look at her pictures again. I was just a bit surprised at how different she looked in person, and I wanted to compare the two. She looked pretty much the same in the pictures, but something was a bit off. As I looked back over at her again, I noticed that something in her facial expression had changed. She now appeared quite serious and concerned. She then said the word, Christiana. Christiana? I, th I thought she was asking if I was Christian. This seemed to me to be a strange question because she already knew I was Jewish since we met on a Jewish dating app. So I looked up how to say Jewish in Russian and then responded to her, Nyet, ya yevri. No, I'm Jewish. No, she said, shaking her head. My name is Christiana. You're not Daria, I answered. 
No, she said. I am Christiana. Then she took out her phone and feverishly typed out a message. She showed me the translation. I think we are on a date with the wrong person. At that point, she stood up, apologized profusely, and walked back into the lobby. A handsome young man was waiting for her there, her actual date. They hugged and walked joyously out of the hotel together. Meanwhile, I checked my messages and feared the worst. Daria had written me. I wait for you for an hour and then see you meet a different girl for a date in the lobby? I'm tired of your games. I'm going home. I sat alone in the hotel bar. My glass of Pinot Noir arrived. Never did a glass of wine look so lonely or taste so bitter. Shavua Tov, indeed. I sink in my chair The smoke from my cigarette Climbs through the air The walls of my room Fade away in the blue And I'm deep in a dream Of you The smoke you are listening to The Shrift, Life Tip 18, Jeremiah 34. You come to my arms, may this bliss never end, for we love anew just as we used to do. When I'm deep in a dream of you, then from the ceiling Sweet music comes stealing We glide Speed is a phenomenon which we take for granted. Speed. Speed is all around us. We now have the ability to hop from country to country due to the ferocious speed with which airplanes travel. We can navigate our way through cities and towns and countrysides with cars, accomplishing in minutes or hours what would have taken days or weeks in past eras. Communication has also become enormously quicker. Instead of waiting days for a letter to arrive, we now receive messages instantaneously. Humans first began to feel the impact of speed in the 19th century with the invention of the train. The French Impressionists were all city dwellers. Monet, Manet, Renoir, Degas, Calabat. They all lived in Paris. Many of their paintings are of scenes from urban life, balconies, cafes, boulevards, parks. And yet, many of their paintings are also of nature, of French landscapes, of the French countryside, of farms and lakes and valleys and rivers and peasants. How can this be? How can they have painted both the city and the country? The answer is because of the train. These Impressionists grew up at the same time that railroad tracks were being laid down all throughout France for the first time ever. 
the Gare Montparnasse was created in 1840, the Gare du Nord in 1846, and the well-known Austerlitz station in 1849. These new trains could zip Parisians out into the countryside in just an hour or two. This technology meant that a person could now live in the city and yet relax and unwind and travel in a nearby town. Parisians like Monet and Renoir eagerly took advantage of the new technology and hopped onto trains any chance they could to enjoy a blend of urban and country life. Just two generations earlier, the world was entirely different. Mozart, who worked largely in the 1780s, could never have envisioned a train. He spent much of his life sitting in a carriage pulled along bumpy rural roads. Here is how biographer Marcia Davenport describes Mozart's countless journeys sitting in the back of a coach on his way out of Salzburg. Quote, the carriage lumbered its way through the little town, skirted the frozen Salzach River, and moved off between the steeply cut mountains. A new and never-to-be-forgotten rhythm implanted itself in Mozart's mind, the pitching beat of heavy wheels, the broken thumping of 16 big hoofs. Unquote. From this excerpt, you get a sense of how slow life used to be, how long it took to get somewhere, before trains, to say nothing of cars and airplanes. The ebullience of modern speed soon withered. Speed, it turned out, had its dark side. In the past, the clock was more of a suggestion, a helpful guide, a passive friend. Yet, with the invention of speed, the clock became a tyrant, an all-pervasive, unchallengeable god. The thrill of catching a train, which would fling you into the countryside, had its costs. You had to make the train on time. And if you missed the train, chaos would enter into your life. Failed plans, a missed interview, the inability to return home, and the necessity to sleep on the street. The German director Fritz Lang made his film Metropolis in 1927. By this point, trains and cars and telephones were not quirky new inventions, but an integrated part of everyday life. Whereas in the time of Monet, speed and timetables had been a kind of novel joy, they were now depicted by Fritz Lang as oppressive slave drivers. One of the main motifs in Metropolis is the ticking clock. Lang depicts futuristic factory life in which the workers are all slaves to the clock, in which time is money, in which all has been sacrificed to speed and efficiency. The Haftarah for this week comes from the book of Jeremiah. Here, Jeremiah tells of Babylon's invasion of Jerusalem. In anticipation of this invasion, the king at the time, Zechadiah, instructed all of his subjects to free their Hebrew slaves. As I discussed in last season's episode on this parsha, Mishpatim, Hebrews had slaves too, and many of these slaves were themselves Hebrew. Anyway, in the book of Jeremiah, we learn how the slaves are freed by Zedekiah, but then, after the threat of invasion from the Babylonians diminishes, the owners turn around and make the freed men and women become servants again. This action infuriates Jeremiah. 
He reminds the Hebrews of the law from the Torah, which is actually given in this week's Parsha. Jeremiah then states what this law is. At the end of every seven years, you shall free every one of your Hebrew slaves after he has served you for six years. I'm going to repeat this commandment. At the end of every seven years, you shall free every one of your Hebrew slaves after he has served you for six years. Right away, you'll notice something strange going on. Why do you free the Hebrew slave at the end of seven years after he has served you for six years? Would it not make more sense to free him at the end of six years? This might seem odd at first, but in fact, there are other cases in which time is distended in this way in common language. For example, in French, the phrase quinze jours is used to express a period of 14 days or two weeks, but quinze in French means 15. In other words, when the French say they will be back from a vacation in two weeks, they literally say they will be back in 15 days. They add a day. Welsh and Greek languages also will allow 15 days to indicate a two-week period. The German language will use eight days to express the period of one week. In German, one may say a week from today as today in eight days or heute in acht Tagen. Even in the opening to the book of Genesis do we get this sentiment. Genesis chapter 2 verse 2 reads that on the seventh day God finished his work when in fact he really finished it on the sixth day. What is going on here? I think the answer is that ancient cultures understood that things take time. Imagine Mozart preparing his horse and buggy for a journey from Leipzig to Prague. He couldn't just step onto the train. Rather, he had to feed his horses, tie them to the cart, study the map, consider the possibility of bad weather, and do all sorts of other preparatory tasks which we today could scarcely conceive of. He may have written to a duke in Prague that he would arrive in two weeks, but two weeks would have been said with a wink and a nod by both parties. Both the duke and Mozart knew that it would really take 15 days, not 14. In short, back then time was given more latitude. All appointments had wiggle room. Today, we do the exact opposite. If you book a hotel for two weeks, it means 14 nights, no more, no less. If your train leaves the station at 8.34 p.m., don't show up at 8.35. The trouble with this mentality is that, even in our modern era of iPhones and Ubers and microwaves and instant coffee, we still need that extra time, that extra day. As my story showed of trying to arrive to a date on time after Shabbat, I overestimated my ability to control time, to rely on technological speed. In a way, the Uber is oftentimes just as slow as the horse and buggy, and the text message just as sluggish as the postmark letter, even though, obviously, both are technically faster. Technically, the religious family in Kiev ended Shabbat far later than they needed to, but all they were really doing was what the French do, Understanding that 14 days really means 15 days. Understanding that, as the ancient Hebrews did, 
six years should really be seen as seven years. This family understood that you shouldn't end Shabbat the moment you see three stars in the sky. Rather, Shabbat should be ended an extra day later, or better said, a half hour later. So, to conclude, take an extra day and allow yourself to become friends with the clock again. Thank you.